Shut up and sit down. everybody and welcome to the writer's table episode 24 um tonight we're going to talk about whatever anybody asks in the ask me question section of discord and but we have some housekeeping first we're going to start with rough trade it's a reminder that rough trade gets cleaned off on june 1st um and that we will also be doing sign-ups for July starting June 1st. And July is the real end. You've got to pick up two movies and rewrite the ending to suit yourself. That doesn't mean it's got to be a good ending. I mean, although I would appreciate it if it was a good evening ending, but it doesn't have to be. It just has to be the ending that you would have preferred. Um, so we'll be doing that. And um, June 1st is also... Leading right into it, the first day of the Quantum Bang, and you will get to read me and who's my partner in posting? Uh, who is your partner in posting? Da, 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 da. Do, we, do we have a publicly posted schedule? We do not yet because I was making sure we had, we did get one late person. Right, so, right. Um, okay. But well, you can wait then. No, wait. your partner. But your the, the the late person is going on the fourteenth. So okay. your your partner in crime is Ellie. Yay, Ellie! Me and Ellie are together. We're posting. Um, I did uh Marvel MCU and Ellie did Harry Potter. Harry Potter, and um, so we'll be posting. I imagine it will go live midnight on June first. Yeah, I was thinking we would maybe, uh, we'll talk about it, but I was thinking maybe we'd do 12 hours apart. Like, we'd have a post every 12 hours-ish. Ish. Approximately. For the That'll be easy days. to schedule, so. Yeah. So, like, every, you know, about every 12 hours for that 14 days, you will get a get new a post. story on the Quantum Bang. Novel links, you're welcome, fandom stories. Mm -hmm. So, that's all I had for a rough trade. What's your Quantum Bang beyond what I just said? Uh, we are nearing the deadline for literally everything for the Quantum Bang. The drop dead date on everything except for our pinch hitter artists is the 28th. So if you have not engaged uh, authors, we've heard from all the artists. Like I said, the only people, the only two people who have an exemption right now are the artists that jumped in to be pinch hitters. So they have some special due dates. But everybody else needs to have every single thing in in three days <laughs> so if you haven't engaged with the challenge yet <laughs> to start turning your stuff in you need to get on that please don't wait until the last minute and find out you have problems as a matter of fact if you haven't gotten anything to us by the 27th you will not be able to post yourself you will have to send your document in um, so that we can handle the post for you because we will not have time to handle technical support issues on the last day uh, Yes, we're very, I've I've marked off everybody who has turned their stuff in. So, um, uh, yeah, so I've marked off everybody who has their stuff in. It's most people have have gotten 
um, everything in or they have touch bases with me so or know when their stuff's coming so I was very excited though that we did get one I was you know thinking because we had so few people who came in for the second round claims that I was didn't think we were going to get anybody for the late deadline and we did get one which gives us two people per day for the entire time so instead of having 27 27 people we'll have 28 so there will be two people posting on the 14th and not one Yay. Which appeals to my OCD on a on just a really happy level. <laughs> um, if you are confused about posting, it is our preference that you just send us your manuscript and let us do it for you. Uh, because I'd rather not clean up your hot mess. Yes. And this is not if you do WordPress only for the quantum bang. Uh, you're not going to remember it from year to year. So there's just, you know, don't worry about it. Just, just send it turn it us. in. It'll take us 20 minutes and then you will still get to go in and look at your post and approve it. We're not going to send it out without your permission and or your authorization. You still have to go look at it and hit that submit button, but we will prep your post for you because if you're not a regular rough trade participant or you don't have your own WordPress site, there's no need to learn the skill set just to forget it by this time next year. It's not that big a deal. And honestly, it could take us 10 minutes to set up your posts or an hour and a half to walk you through your posts or sometimes up to two hours to fix your posts if we just don't delete them outright and start over. So in the end, it's just better to let us do it because we both have OCD and we both have control issues and it just makes everybody happier if you just, you know, you know. Yeah, but if you do rough trade on a regular basis, you're probably familiar with most of this. The interface is actually simpler. We we took the rough trade thing and we toned it down. Um, but if you found this year difficult, next year we're going to give you two doors to walk through. In the beginning, we're not going to give posting instructions. It's going to be I'm super comfortable with this process or I'm not. And if you walk through door number two, you're going to turn your document in and wash your hands of it. <laughs> and be <done. laughs> that'll be that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that, seriously, seriously, dudes. Okay. Um, I am getting serious by my podcast distribution. Um, I, my podcast is exclusively available on, um, CastBox, and I've made the decision not to distribute my RSS feed to, um, to wherever, um, like iTunes or whatever, but, if you have my RSS feed, you can feed it into your iTunes and pick it up that way. Um, I'm just not going to do it personally. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to add myself to iTunes. Um, so if you go to my website and you look at the last posting I did on podcasts, you will see that I've given you the link for the RSS feed. And you can set up your own um, subscription through iTunes using that RSS feed if you're familiar with that process. I am not. I'm not an iTunes user. Um, but I'm sure that some industrious teenager has a um, YouTube tutorial dedicated to it. Mm -hmm. And someone in MHQ at some point even did a write-up on how to do an RSS feed through RSS subscription in iTunes. So it's not difficult. Google the fuck out of that. And But um, CastBox has its own app for, um, for uh, Android and Apple uh, or iPhone, whatever. Um, so 
that you can, and it's really, really super easy to use and do subscriptions and you can do favorites. You can favorite episodes that you liked a lot. There's, they have a whole bunch of content. Um, I have CastBox on my phone. I've actually had CastBox for years and that's my main method of listening to po to podcasts. Um, and so, uh, and they do have audiobooks. So, and you can get subscriptions, but all of my content is going to be free on um, CastBox, so you don't have to get any kind of membership or prescription or subscription, or some of you might need a prescription, but you don't need a <laughs> subscription to listen to the podcast. Um, and uh, you can also listen to it on your browser. And on my site, I've set up the podcast page uh, with the built-in player that it's not going to hit my bandwidth. It's on their dime. Um, but you can still listen from my site, and they have a whole list of um, episodes. And I've stopped listing my episodes on my site because CastBox does a really excellent job of archiving, and it's really easy to browse through and, and look at the different things. And so I've stopped adding the big list to my site because it was getting kind of difficult to maintain because I have 300 plus, I have 350 plus podcasts. Speaking of, recently um, someone pointed out to me that I didn't have the Touching Secrets po podfic on my little fandom on the go channel. And I had actually forgotten that Touching Secrets had been made a, pod a podfic. And it's by Cookie Mom. Cookie Mom did it for me. And um, I put it up on fandom to go. And you can listen to Touching Secrets. Cool. Yeah. L did it. <laughs> I'm like, is that Kira? Is that Kara? Or is that? Um, I did figure out which podcast was secret. Yes. Do you remember why it was secret? Because I said my sister's name in the middle of it. Ah, okay. Um. Sweetheart, that didn't help me at all. Kyra? Kiara? 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 Tiara like with a K? Mm. I like that. Kiara. That's pretty. Awesome. Good job. Um, so, yeah. So, that, that that's the thing on podcasts. Um, and, uh, you know, it'll be... If this goes well tonight, it will be available on um, CastBox. Probably um, either... If it goes well tonight, maybe tonight, but definitely tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Unless it just fucks up and then I'll just be furious and bitching about it, which is entirely possible as well. Now, that, someone had actually pointed out to me that CastBox has a live cast option. It's a baby right now, and I'm not happy with the, with the features. So I'm keeping an eye on it. I'll be watching it grow, and every once in a while I'll click on it and check it out, see how it looks. I'm just not happy with what's going on there, and um, so it might be a while before I even try to think about trying like on the live cast on on Castbox. Um, so yeah, done that, done that. I like to talk a little bit um before we get started on the the writing questions about respect. Um, and especially when it comes to fandom and um, the respect that uh, how you treat others and how you treat uh, how you treat rough trade, 
how you treat um, the wild hair project, how you treat the quantum bang, um, adhering to our rules, um, being a good fandom citizen, being a good person when you're on Discord, uh, when when you're in just right and you're in, in the work environment and you're, you're you're being on point and you're not being a distraction. And I really appreciate the effort you guys are going through on just right to to be really awesome fandom citizens and really participating in the writing sprints and really just you know honing your craft. Um, I'm I'm here for it and you guys are doing an awesome job. Uh, so but when it comes to like rough trade or, or like the challenge of quantum bang or any of the other banks that are currently going on and, and the rules that get attached to these events um, just being mindful that you get the respect you give and if you act inappropriately in public it's gonna come back on you and that's that's just really all I want to say about that. <sighs> and there's nothing there's nothing specific that I would say that's happened. Um, I'm just generally irritated about something, and you know, it's just. Uh, anyways, just treat our environments and our communities with respect. That's all we ask. I mean, uh, we didn't ask much of you when it came to the quantum bang. We didn't try to, to confine you on fandoms. We, we had a simple theme that's really easy and expansive to, to play with. Um, the word count is not unreasonable in a year. And 50K in a year is not unreasonable. I've seen some of you guys in sprints averaging four and 5,000 words a day, which is amazing. Congratulations on those, on, on those of you who are accomplishing that. That is stunning. But even if you did a thousand words a day, you could hammer out 50K in 50 days. So, yeah. There's nothing about the rules in our communities that are difficult to follow. Um, so, I'm just asking you to be a good person, or I will space you. And report you AWOL. You'll be spaced, yeah. Okay, so moving on. <laughs> moving on. Should we just take the questions from the top? Um. Someone rescued Twilight speaker seeker from the um the cafe. She's in the wrong audio. Okay, so let's just talk from the top. So our first question is uh, about POV, and it's can you talk a bit about objective POV versus outsider POV versus omniscient versus head hopping? Um, so omniscient versus head hopping, I think it's one topic versus objective versus outsider. Um, and a, an outsider could be a type of objective POV, kind of in a way, but not really. Objective POV means that your, your audience doesn't know anything more than what's happening on screen. It is a point of view that was sort of the hallmark of mysteries back in the day, because the idea was that you weren't relaying, and there was nothing subjective happening. 
There were no thoughts tainting things. There was no emotional content. It was everything was what was seen on the screen. So it allowed there to be a mystery unfolding that would be solved. Objective POV can be really limiting because it doesn't have a lot of emotional context for people. Um, so it really was kind of it kind of niche in the mystery genre. It didn't really fly well in most other genres. Um, but a kind of type of objective POV, it's not exactly objective POV, is the outsider POV. And outsider POV is the POV the story's written from is someone who is not a central character. So it'd be like um, a story where the tale is told from like the perspective of a waitress or... You know, whichever way that looks for your story. Like, uh, I read a story once where it was a Teen Wolf story where the perspective was, the point of view was a, the waitress who waits on the pack all the time. Um, and showing the evolution of the pack through time from the lens of someone who was not part of the pack. So that would be an outsider point of view. There's a really good one in Stargate where um, she's, a, she's a member of the city, but she's not from Earth. And they've been cut off from Earth. And it starts with her saying that she doesn't like Colonel Shepard. And you find out through the um, evolution of this short story that McKay and Shepard had a falling out. They had an argument. And McKay went back to Earth to cool down. And he was supposed to come back, but then Earth fell to some event that the, that the narrator doesn't talk about. Um after that, John, well, the colonel, um, withdrew, and he became very um, rigid, and um, uh, a lot of the civilians don't like him, because he's very militant about going off-world, and, you know, whether or not you're safe, and, um, and then at the end, she sees why, because a ship from Earth finally makes it to the planet and Rodney is on it and she sees um, John smile for the first time in like two years and it was a really interesting story I was <clears throat> I'm trying to find it now, I don't know this particular one I typically find to my preferences is that outsider point of view is not sustainable in a very long story um, because you don't connect with the narrator like you would if you was one of the main characters. But it all depends upon how it's done. So inherently, most third-person points of view are subjective points of view, which means you are from the lens of the narrator, as opposed to third-person objective. But the I think the idea behind the outsider point of view is to try to give an objective point of view that is still effectively subjective. So it's kind of like trying to wedge an objective point of view into the subjective categories. So if you break your point of views into objective and subjective, pulling in the outsider point of view is trying to in a little bit of that objectivity potentially. I think that was probably the intent why people started using that point of view. But it can be a very powerful point of view if used effectively. It can be a lame duck if used ineffectively. So it's like, does it serve what you're trying to do? Did you find it? No, I did not. I'll, it's, it's, 
probably in that thematic list of cut off from Earth. Mm. Um, the, the, there's a whole big list of, of Atlantis has been abandoned or Atlantis files for independence or, you know, um, cut off from Earth fix. Um, it's a big trope. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in that list. Uh, but it's a short story. I, I wouldn't even say it's 5,000 words. Um, it's very interesting, and it's told from an outsider's point of view. Um, Willow, the Fick Ninja, is um, in the chat room, so maybe she's she's, she's typing um, right now. She's looking. She thinks she has it bookmarked. So we'll 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 get back to that. Um, the the objective point of view. Like I said, I've never read a long story that I thought had a, an outsider point of view that I thought was effective. I have read short stories, however, where I thought it was very effectively employed. Uh, I'm always willing to. Um, read, you know, new things and try new things, but typically my experience with it is, is that it starts to lack any kind of connection, because the in order for the POV to remain an outsider point of view, they have to stay an outsider. And eventually that gets kind of old. Uh, but you could do kind of an outsider becoming an insider thing, but it's still it's not quite outsider point of view. Um, objective is not something that in the modern fiction market I think has much place anymore. Would you agree with that? Mm, I would agree. It's it's not intimate, and I think the modern fiction writer reader wants an intimate connection with the characters. Yeah, even if it's an outsider character, they want to connect. And the the objective point of view is there's no connection. It's about keeping the audience in the dark, as in the dark as the characters are. So. Which is why it's, it was so effective for mysteries, pure mysteries, but it's just not particularly effective for anything else. Okay, so the other point of view question was omniscient versus head hopping. And there are some people who just head hop like a motherfucker and they don't even realize what they're doing. But there is also the segment of people who think that they're writing omniscient when they're really head hopping. And omniscient point of view, the God point of view, is very narrow. It is the point of view of the narrator. And the narrator is separate from your characters, effectively. Think of, they call it the God point of view because your narrator could be God. Your narrator could be um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that book, you know, whatever. It could be your narrator is a completely separate entity, right? So that is the point of view. And you have to stick to it to stay omniscient. Now, the thing about the omniscient narrator is they know everything. Where people screw up and they head hop is they think that omniscient means is they're getting into the heads of all the characters. That's head hopping. As opposed to telling the story through a narrator who just knows everything. Which is not the same thing as being in a character's head. So if you're getting into the character's head, you're head hopping. I think that when an omniscient POV, yeah, of course I've done it. Everybody's done it. Everybody is head hopped. The point is, is to learn not to do it. And I am very guilty of it in fan fiction. Because um, I do a lot of things in fan fiction that I wouldn't do in pro work. So I'm not always a really good example of that. Um, but when I was younger, I had like a motherfucker. You would not believe that. I mean, I make Nora Roberts look like a POV queen. And I love myself some Nora Roberts, but she, 
I'm not sure if she thinks she's riding an omniscient point of view or what, but it's just head hopping. It's just but head hopping. But people, but know when you go too hopping. intimate into the emotions, you're definitely head hopping. Um, it stops being omniscient and it becomes because an omniscient is kind of objective. There's an object objective point of view in that in that position where they aren't offering opinion as fact. Um, they're presenting to you the circumstances and even if they kind of say okay and this made him mad they're not um digging deep into those emotions because when you dig deep into those emotions you're, um, you're head hop so think about the way the third hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy is narrated it is funny as fuck in some places but it is equally how it treat how it treats all the characters so there's no character that you're seeing more of. Not every character is a main character, but the characters are all looked at the same way. They're all treated the same way. They're all kind of spoken about the same way. You're not any more in one character's head than another. Um, there's no, you know, mystery about anybody's motivations because the narrator knows everything. And the narrator in that particular case, and the reason why I always bring up Hitchhikers is a good example of omniscient point of view is because unlike some other other examples of omniscient point of view where the narrator has almost no personality in hitchhikers the narrator has a very distinct personality so it's very easy to pick the narrator out and say that's the guy who's telling the story as opposed to something more subtle what was it Anne of Green Gables that they said is omniscient that I kind of like blinked a few times when it, oh they say pride and prejudice is omniscient and <laughs> <laughs> they said that's pretty I know right I had that same reaction I was like really hmm, I don't think okay. so <laughs> um, but sometimes you hear a story is written in an omniscient point of view and you kind of scratch your head and you go really and the thing is learning about omniscient point of view requires that you identify works that you've read where you can go okay i understand the difference between the narrator and the characters and hitchhikers is such a good example because the narrator is so distinct from the characters the narrator is its own character in a way so it's a good way to you know like if let's say that um kira lady holder and i all witnessed the same events that we weren't personally involved in. And each of us were telling the tale of that event. We would each be telling it if we witnessed it and we knew everything that happened. We would each be relating that story um, in an omniscient point of view, right? We are the narrator. And each of those tellings would come out very differently because we're each very different people. And the way we would tell a story is very different. And that's what you kind of have to put do is create kind of in your mind who is the narrator for the story. And you're putting that between the writer and the characters as opposed to dipping into everybody's head, which is where that head hoppy feel comes from. You thought what was third? Not See, I, I would say that I would have said that, that Pride and Prejudice was third person multiple and third person multiple was um third person multiple is a subset of third person limited third person limited is one character's point of view told in third person third person multiple is multiple characters are telling the story but only one of them at a time and that's the 
that's actually the the fiction norm that's what the modern fiction market expects unless you're moving into like YA where the first person point of view is really popular or deep third or deep third which is where you would get typically in deep third they kind of expect you to stay in one point of view so i kind of decide i uh Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice didn't read to me like omniscient, but book critics, you know, literary experts say it is. So okay, um, I would have said it was it was one of the it was some part of some such segment of third person limited. Third person limited or third person multiple, which is a subset of third person limited, is the most common in fiction. It is what most people are comfortable with. It is the easiest to learn from an osmosis perspective, meaning you have read it over and over and over again and therefore it's easy to emulate i mean i would definitely say that it's third person multiple but i, I just, i'm having a hard time seeing it as omniscient i mean i know i i, I would say that if, i would have if somebody said what is pride and Fred just written in i would definitely have said third person multiple i would not have said omniscient but you know, it's like, okay. Um, and it could be that our, our, our standards for fiction have evolved. And like it used to be that a mid scene POV transition was considered head hopping. Um, now it's not considered that as long as you don't do it like more than once in a scene transition, your point of view, like you can get it one time you do a smooth transition into a different point of view. And that's, becoming more the standard in the modern fiction market 20 years ago they would have called that head hopping so it point of view evolves as time goes on so you look look at deep third versus Edie's asking in the chat room about deep third versus shallow third it's not really shallow but yeah it's like you know what really go read something of Jilly's who more often than not, ends up in a deep third person, and then go read mine, something from me, because I ride the top of my narrative, whereas Julie is just like one notch above riding in first person, in a third person point of view. Her her POV is so deep that honestly, in most cases, she could easily convert her, her work to first person, and it wouldn't be much of a stretch. No. So uh, my deepest my deepest point of view in any of my stories is memories. Um, it's a single point of view story. Um, but yeah. So anytime I get into one point of view and I stay in it the whole story, my point of view always is really deep. So deep third person is like writing in first person, but you are so it's a little bit and the construction is different because you don't say things like. Um, you wouldn't see, like in a in a typical third person narrative where you're writing higher in the narrative, you would say something like, um, if you're having direct thoughts, it would be something like, I wish he would go to the store, she thought. In a third person, deep third person narrative, everything is assumed to be the character's thoughts. So you don't put in thought tags. You don't have to worry about direct versus indirect thoughts because, you know, you're deeper in the character's head. So it's just, there's just some construction differences. So also in deep third person, how characters are addressed is a little bit differently. Um, 
you, you especially deep third person is very com- is becoming more common in YA. So you see things like, you know, in the narrate in the in the non dialogue narrative, you see stuff like mom and dad being called mom and dad, not called his father. So, okay, um, I had a technical difficulty and I dropped out of the chat, so I didn't get any of that recorded. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So I have stopped recording, and we're going to start again. Um, I don't know what got cut off. (laughs) Did you start recording again? Yes. So apparently the story that um, I was referencing that had the outsider point of view was called Two Years After Tomorrow by Lavian. Cool. So somebody found it. Great. Um, so that is, I know that point of view can be a really difficult thing to um, kind of wrap your head around, especially if you're trying to work on a different type of point of view. The easiest way to understand a subjective narrative, which is the majority of third person, and people hate it when we say this, except for third-person objective and third-person omniscient. So let's take those and set them aside. The majority of fiction is written in some form of third-person subjective, whether it's outsider point of view, whether it's third-person limited, third-person multiple. That is the majority of the fiction market. So we'll take the third-person subjective bucket and say, if you want to understand this point of view, you need to write first-person. Because first person will teach you about point of view in a way third person never will. Because when you are in first person, you are in... What fell off again? I think we lost Kira again. Okay, we're waiting for Kira to come back because she will commence recording. So we've got an AO3 link and we've got a... Um, no, I don't, um, have any idea about that Teen Wolf story. There are so many Teen Wolf stories and sometimes, you know, the short, short ones go in and out of my head. Like, but someone else may recognize it. I don't think Kira's back in. There's so many people in the in the audio that I can't tell. Okay, I'm back, I think. Yes, you are. For fuck's sake. I know, a lot of people hate writing first person. I totally get it. 
Um, are you recording? Yep. No. No. Well, I'll just keep yapping about first-person point of view. We don't need that for the podcast. Um, I know it's hard to write first-person, especially if you don't like it, but it does teach a lot about restricting your point of view. If you want to stop head-hopping, write in first-person a little bit. Don't worry about your tenses and stuff. Um, just try to... Because first-person point of view is such a restricted point of view that you will you'll learn how to confine yourself to what one character can know and when you confine yourself to what one character can know you'll stop head hopping and it could be i didn't have a ton of problem learning not to head hop because i started writing in first person i started writing my first story i ever wrote when i was 12 was in first person and i wrote first person exclusively until i was i would guess my mid 20s so 15 years or so, 13, somewhere between 13 and 15 years, I only wrote first-person point of view. So I was used to that really narrow lens. And so when I started writing third-person, I understood the limitations of my point of view. Okay. Um, I, okay. <clears throat> now. Honestly, I have no idea where the last recording stopped. Um, it was definitely about uh, third-person omniscient. Okay. So we had a recording glitch, and there was some more discussion about third-person omniscient. Um, but if you think about, if you want to think about breaking your point of view up into, there's like three different thought exercises. There's first-person, which is exclusively by itself, and then within the third-person realm. You can split it up into the objective points of view and the subjective points of view. And arguably, third-person omniscient is kind of an objective point of view. It's not exactly, it's not a perfect fit there, but it's more objective than the others. Okay, You could make it an objective point of view. And then there's the more limited points of view, where you are telling the story through the lens of someone, and that is your subjective points of view. And how you choose to use that, whether you're using one point of view or two points of view, three, four, five, depending on the needs of your story, or whether you have an outsider point of view. The third person subjective, if you don't want to head hop, work on your first person narrative, even if it pains you terribly. But if, if you head hop, you know, Nora Roberts does it too. I'm just saying. Um, it's not One of the it's, pitfalls of, of first person you need to be aware of, though, is that um, to make sure that you're talking in your character's voice and not your own. Um, this happens in third person for some authors as well, where they insert their own thoughts or feelings into the narrative, and it starts to look like second person. Talking to the audience. And it's it's really super distracting. Um the only thing worse, I think, that that fandom encourages is that whole repetitive scene thing. Where, like, oh. yeah, I don't need to see a scene from six different points of view. One will do. Even two is one too many. Okay, so we probably... If anybody ever has questions about point of view, just go ahead and ask them because point of view is one of those things. It's a, I would say it's the hardest of the writing fundamentals to master. 
of the things I would consider foundational, like tense, point of view, GMC, all that stuff, I would say point of view is the one. Because, I mean, I wouldn't even say that I don't have any kind of mastery of point of view. I'm better at certainly some points of view. I'm really good at it. But I, I would suck writing omniscient. I've tried. I don't like it. I feel like it requires so much concentration to keep on task that it just it makes it very difficult. So it's a very difficult skill to master, even though it's very foundational. So point of view is going to come up over and over and over again for people. So when you have questions, just go ahead and ask. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can look back at work I wrote even a year ago and go, oh, look what I did. <laughs> And I did a head hop so severe in Ties That Bind that I actually created a one-sided conversation. <laughs> because I had head hopped. And it happens in the scene between Evan and Matt. And I had meant to make a transition into Matt's point of view. But I didn't make the transition. And so the entire conversation that Evan has with his father is in, is in Evan's point of view. But it should be in Matt's. And I wrote Evan's dialogue like it was in Matt's POV. So it ended up looking like one of those ridiculous NCIS one-sided conversations. Which is like a blight on fandom. I'm just saying. Please, please don't let that spread beyond NCIS. It probably already has. I can't even deal. Um, it's horrific. Yeah. I mean, I do I do a POV change in one of my stories for one line. It's the very last line in, in, the, in the scene. And the whole scene up to that point was told in the other character's point of view. And the very last line is from the other character's point of view. For one line, I would call that a head hop. <laughs> because you can't you can't you can't do a scene transition a POV transition for one line it's bogus <laughs> there's a line in um one of my Harry Potter and Soulmate Bond stories where Hermione has just learned from people that um Voldemort uh would uh animagus form was a snake and he got it on with the genie while he was a snake and um she calls him a sick bastard or something. And that the last line of that particular scene was, and no one could disagree with her. As opposed to no one did disagree with her. Right. So literally everybody in that scene had a, had a POV in that one sentence. In, like, one in one word. You used a modal verb and you gave yep. everybody a point of view. Yep. Um, I love it. I love, look at that shit. It's still there too because I can't even. I'm like, no, what? Yeah, I'm going to leave it. Because that nasty bastard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. But that's the thing is that, you know, uh, you see these things that um, you do and um, and recognizing those things in your work is like awesome. It's like point. It's, it, it's on point because you're learning something. Yeah. So you just let your mistakes stand. Although if I ever do edit that story the way I'm thinking about doing and cutting it down into something else entirely, I might take that <laughs> one line. Although I don't know. I mean, I reckon, it's funny that I realized at the time I was doing a one-sentence head hop, and I was like, eh, I don't care. So sometimes <laughs> you just don't give a fuck. So who knows? Okay, next question. Is internal monologue and exposition synonymous? What are the do's and don'ts of internal monologue, and how do you know when you are overusing it? Um... 
And then um, they gave an example of, was from Ellie, she gave an example of a story she reread, a story she read called Style Stilinski Boyfriend Extraordinaire uh, that she felt was an ex- uh, a successful use of internal monologue. No, so I would start with the first question. Are they synonymous? No. Um, you can dump a lot of exposition into internal monologue, but they are not the same thing. Um, because inter- that implies that all internal monologue could be replaced by showing something, and it can't. It, sometimes your characters have to have a thought. They have to... The thing is, internal monologue especially, this is like one of the biggest craft issues with fan fiction writers in, in their construction is that their characters have way too much internal monologue. And it's not just internal monologue, it's repetitive internal monologue. They think the same thing over and over and over again. And also, sometimes, literally, I think it's the author's monologue. Yes, that too. Um, so, a character having an internal monologue, like they are thinking about leaving their job um, because of this, this, or this. One of the things about internal monologue is you you can use it very effectively to convey a lot of information very succinctly. It's, you know, especially in fandom, where conceivably the characters are somewhat familiar with, like, let's say you're doing a dead air story and Tony is thinking about leaving NCIS. Okay. So like in one sentence, because most people who are reading a dead air story understand what happened, Tony can just say, you know, his partners had left him without backup and he wasn't sure he could ever work, continue to work at NCIS or something like that. And you can encapsulate all of those events with one sentence to remind the reader of why Tony's thinking about leaving. What you more often see is the character going on and on and on and on and on about every piece of the event that happened, everything that was said, um, multiple events from the past that have absolutely nothing, no bearing whatsoever on that particular event, and the character is like mentally cycling. That's not exposition. That's just repetitive stuff that isn't moving your story forward. Because you can't call that exposition because it's not. Exposition is relaying information. It's a data dump, okay? And I would not call a repetitive inner monologue a data dump, personally. Because sometimes you need exposition in your story. Like, if an event is not crucial to your plot and you can cover it in two sentences versus showing it that would take 5,000 words and it's not important, that two sentences of exposition is a better choice. This is where that pithy show-don't-tell advice can bite you in the ass, is you show-don't-tell if it's important to your story. If it's not important to your story, why are you showing it? But if it's a data point that you need the reader to know about, you get it out there as quickly and succinctly as you possibly can, and then you move on to the things you need to show. So some level of exposition is usually necessary, especially in plot-driven stories. Um, So I have a real pet peeve about internal monologue, character internal monologue, especially the self-cycling you know, where they go over and over and over and over the same thing. It ends and, up being a giant pity party. Mm-hmm. And it's not entertaining to read, and it's not um, it's not um, uh, conducive to growing your character. Uh, right. And often in these stories, which off, you see it a lot with the two Tonys. You see it a lot with Tony Stark and Tony Dinozo. Uh, I see it also with Styles and Derek. So there are a few characters who 
I see this kind of thing with, where not only do they repetitively go over it in their own internal monologue, but they also talk about it. If your character is going to have a dialogue with somebody about this stuff, there is absolutely no reason to have the internal monologue. It's pointless. Your dialogue is much more effective than the character thinking about it. All right, just If you're planning to have your character talk to a problem, don't have them think about it, too. So, well, they can think about it. They just don't need to show the reader those thoughts. Yeah, over and yeah, yeah. Just especially the repetitive nature of it, and um, it can be. I I read something recently where it was uh, the first five thousand words was about. Well, maybe the first two thousand words was about one hundred and fifty words of information on repeat. Uh, my eyes were going cross. <laughs> I was like, I, and so I finally just started skipping. I started skimming down going, when am I going to get past some repeat version of this like 150 words of data? And that's about how many words it took me to encapsulate that amount of data. It was about 150 words. And, you know, over 2,000 words, the entire first chapter was that data in some form being repeated and rephrased and reframed. And it was like, why are we doing this? But and that was an extreme example, but I see that in fan fiction all the time where the character has the same thought chapter after chapter after chapter. So it can be like that that repetitive internal monologue we're talking about in the chat room, someone says I'm not having a mental breakdown in progress. Um that is a very specific um situation for your character. Um that leans itself towards that that repetitive internal monologue but even in that particular instance that repetition could get could drag your narrative down and fuck you up yeah so you need to make concise choices when you're doing something like that when when you're documenting your character going off the deep end you need to have you need to make concise um, specific choices about um, what they say, what they do, and how they do it. Um, so you don't have Tony throwing a a bridge tantrum in the middle of um, NCIS. Yeah. I mean, if he's that close to the edge, um... Well, honestly, you're going to need to show the break, the progression of breakdown long before he ever got to that point. But this, you know, but, but that's a whole, a whole, you know, difficult thing. Yeah, the why doesn't anybody like me boohoo thing? Um, you just, you just got to be careful with the internal pity party with a character, because even if you don't mean it that way, if the character's mistreatment is on repeat in your story it comes across like an internal pity party. So you have to be really mindful about that internal repeat. Because um, that's the last thing you want, is it to seem like your character is self-pitying. Because that's just not... Mostly because most people aren't going to relate to that character. They don't want to read that. Um, how do you... It's okay, so that was our internal monologue and exposition... Definitely two different things. Both can be very overused. Both can be very powerful when used correctly. You can, with the right 
piece of exposition in the right place. And sometimes you really do need exposition. Um, there are ways of delivering exposition that are more impactful than others. For instance, Kira has used exposition very effectively through court scenes um, or through trials or whatever. That is a form of exposition where you are giving the reader data about something that has happened and giving it in a court scene or in a hearing, something like that, can be a much more interesting way of imparting that kind of data to the reader. Um, I did a big ex data, I did an exposition, a big exposition thing in intuitive where it's done through a classroom setting where tony's an instructor and you learn a bunch of information about psychic powers and stuff as he's teaching a class full of people uh, so there are ways to bring exposition into your story if it's lengthy that's more interesting than just dumping the data on the page but you could also wind up with exposition coming out through an internal monologue. So internal monologue can be a delivery vehicle for exposition. One of the least effective, one of them. The most, I think that internal monologue as an exposition delivery vehicle is one of the least effective. I tend to avoid it. And if I want to give my character like um, an internal thought to kind of like, you know, to do impact, you just italicize it, you know, Okay, that was fucked up. <laughs> and then Tony's continuing what he's saying, you know, doing or saying. Um, just having this little in moment of of, of uh, internal monologue or or internal dialogue, really, um, creates. Uh, it, it gives you a small window, but it's not like it's not throwing you out the window. And you're like knee deep in it, and it's and you're miserable as a reader. Because you're, because you can start to hate the character, especially mm -hmm. if they're whining a lot. Yeah, I have Tony. Um, Tony in in. Well, I can't remember the name of my own story. Um, in If Found, um, Tony has a lot of moments of internal monologue, but they're very short, typically. And I tried to make sure very carefully that the tone of that changed because I didn't want him being stuck on repeat as he progressed through finding out about his real family and his issues there. Uh, so it, the issues that he was having, I was focusing on different aspects of what he was going through as opposed to just him being stuck. Um, so that story would have read very differently. So let's say if you imagine if found, you know, this is going to be a terrible example for somebody who hasn't read it, but if you, if you have, if you've read if found and you can imagine that all of Tony's internal thoughts are focused on why did Senior adopt him if he didn't want him, if he didn't love him, why did he have a shitty childhood, you know, why take him from a loving family? It's all valid, it's the truth, right? But if what if that had been his internal monologue every single time he was having an emotional crisis was that single data point? The, the story would have had a very different tone. And that's why you have to kind of avoid that internal monologue on repeat because it can come across as boo-hoo. I mean, that was a terrible circumstance. So he kind of like, and he had like one moment where he just totally lost it, right? But he, you know, he, I felt like I, he kind of earned that moment. And then outside of that, he was working through it. And whenever he had a moment of internal monologue, it was about the next thing he was working through as opposed to continuing to focus on Senior didn't love me. I had a shitty childhood. Why did he take me if he didn't? Wasn't going to care. 
because that could have been really annoying. Actually, it would have been. That's why I picked it as an example because it would have been awful. I think that um, it, it really highlights um, in that particular story uh, Senior's narcissism. Um, yeah. And um, his... his obscene desire to get revenge on somebody and never, and that even if they would never know who, who did it. Satisfied in punishing Patrick for a business decision by stealing his child. It's a level of narcissism that it makes you want to stab somebody in the face. I mean, yeah. it's just like, ugh. <laughs> and if and the thing is, Patrick was probably stuck on that a lot, but Patrick only thought about it on screen once. Um, Tony probably thought about it, or Alex probably thought about it several times, but he only thought about it once because it, you don't want to bludgeon the reader. Because the thing is, when you start bludgeoning the reader with an emotion, with emotional tone or emotional content, it's like you're telling them how to feel. It's more like present it, and maybe you need to do it once or twice, but present it and let them decide how they feel about it. When it comes up over and over and over again, it feels like, to me, when I read that, it's like I'm being told how to feel. And sometimes, how I, sometimes I, I, how I feel is, oh, boo-hoo. <laughs> Stop crying. And if found, it puts a real highlight on Singer's treatment of Tony throughout his life. And that he does treat him like shit, like Claire said in the chat room just now. But it's like he was continuously punishing Patrick Shepard through Tony. Yeah. For decades. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, you know, honestly, I have read a lot of fics where Singer was a real bastard, but I have to say that in If Found, he is a special love. He's going to special hell in If Found. <laughs> yeah, I, I really can't stand Senior. He, I, I think I've said in like author notes and places that he will never have an easy ride in one of my stories. That the best he can, you know, we, that fans of him can hope for is that I'll ignore him. Uh, because I think I just my perception of him was set by early canon, and then they retconned the fuck out of that, and right. I, my brain just didn't make an adjust. So I do think I and I I think from what I saw in canon even. He was extreme. Even when they retconned his terrible behavior, he was such a narcissist and spiteful too. So spiteful narcissist, what would he do? And that's kind of where I went with that. Whatever he wanted. Yeah. But another an example of Kira's about not belaboring an emotional point and letting the reader have. Why can't this is my I, th I swear this is my favorite story of yours, but I can never remember the title. <sighs> What's it about? <laughs> the story where "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" gets repealed, and and um, what's her face? Dipshit um, outs John. Human and nature. There's human nature. Thank you. Um, that's another case. Now, if Kira could have had very easily a very emotional, a repetitive emotional tone from John about everything that was going on with him with that list and everything in human nature, but she didn't. The emotional tone progressed. There wasn't, it wasn't on repeat. And I think that's really important when you're dealing with um, 
internal monologue, difficult emotional. Because honestly, internal monologue comes up around the more emotional stuff, right? It, yeah. If, pe- if people are monologuing about making breakfast, stop it. That's just unnecessary exposition. <laughs> but internal monologue comes up around emotional topics. And so you have to be sure that you are progressing the monologue as your story moves. Otherwise, it's just a repeat. I think another problem I see in fandom when it comes to um, exposition um, is unnecessary exposition. Uh, Things that you don't need to spell out for your reader that you're spelling out anyway. And it drags your narrative down. And so I I don't want to pick anybody out in particular to, to to do this to. Um, so I'm not going to say a, a specific story or another. But have you ever read a story um, and you like the idea and you like the pairing and you're on board with what the way the plot is going but it keeps dragging you down and you're exhausted? Like you read a chapter and you're fucking exhausted? That's because their exposition is dragging you down into the basement. Mm-hmm. I read, um, and I, there are many Harry Potter stories that have done this, um, so I'm really not picking anybody out here. I, was, I tried to read. It was actually an interesting story up until the point that the author started revealing their magical world building. They'd done a bunch of world building about magical theory. So they had, all, and a lot of people do. Kira's done work on magical theory. I've done work on magical theory to try to make some sense of some of the Harry Potter stuff or what we're, we're writing, right? Whether it's you know, light versus dark magic or ritual craft versus, um, you know, blood magic or whatever, you know, I think that, um, it's a pretty common thing for HP writers to, to delve into is to sort out some level of magical theory for their story. Well, this person had done apparently a lot of very advanced work on magical theory and they wanted to be sure the reader understood all of their magical theory, even though it was not remotely relevant to the story. And so, <laughs> <laughs> the first time this magical theory stuff came up, it was like 10,000 words of it. Nothing but magical theory being presented, right? And it's like Harry and Hermione are learning all this magical theory. For what purpose? Nobody knows. But, and the thing is, most of it was not, I mean, there was like in that 10,000 words, there was like 500 words of content that moved the story forward. So the next chapter comes up, and I, I slogged through it thinking I was going to, I was getting somewhere because I've been enjoying the story up to that point. Slogged through it get to the the next chapter and the author starts with an author note about how she got bitched at for all of her exposition in the prior chapter and that she was she said you know i've got a lot more to go and i'm not going to stop because i love this stuff and if you don't like it don't read the story and i was like well all right (laughs) so let me know thank you so the thing is i did was a quick scan and there's easily another twenty thousand words of exposition on magical theory and I mean, clearly this was a long story. It was hundreds of thousands of words. But nobody needs ever thirty to 40,000 words of exposition about magical theory in their story. And that doesn't matter that it was presented in dialogue. It was one character monologuing about magical theory for 30,000 words in a row. So, so listen, <laughs> if you do all this world building and you want to share it with your readers, that's what appendices are for. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. Do, write it Take all down. Take a page out of Tolkien's book. 
someone out there will read it. Someone out there will love the fuck out of that and they'll read it, but it's not good craft to put that in your story. And I just, I have like zero interest in people who, like in writing people go, well, it's just fan fiction. If that's your answer for why you're doing shitty things, I, I'm not talking to you. We've had that discussion before. So, um, I do things in fan fiction because it's fan fiction, but it's because it, it's like, yay, I get to do this. I get to put my, and usually it's vanity scenes. Let's be real. I get vanity scenes and that's what I like about fan fiction versus, um, <laughs> original I work. Earlier I was talking about how I do things in fan fiction that I wouldn't do in pro work. And it, it does tend to be, um, vanity, um, because, um, there are concepts and, um, Things that you can explore in fan fiction that you can't really get away with in commercial fiction. And so it's fun. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very fun. But I try to write those vanity scenes to the best of my ability and make sure that there's, not, A, not too many of them. Because I don't want to drag my pace down with too many scenes that aren't moving the story forward. Um, but the fact that you're working with established characters also sets a slightly different rule pattern. But I would never dismiss good craft when it comes to things like exposition or character craft or anything like that because of the, oh, it's only fan fiction. That's just, that's just bullshit. I'm just saying. And, you know, I have been writing for um, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh. 22 years? Am I, doing the ma- am I doing the math right? Are you 43 or 44? God. <laughs> Don't tell me you're 42. I am 42 to the day I die because that's the perfect number. I'll be 45 this year. Dude. Actually. Yeah. I thought you were like two and a half years younger than me. I guess you're a year and a half younger than me. I'll be 45 this year. And I re- finished my first novel at the age of 12. So I've been writing for 33 years. Um, I say that only because to say this. Every day I learn something new about myself as a writer and about my craft. Um, I'm a work in progress as a writer. I will be a work in progress as a writer until I die. That's the way that works for me. Ernest Hemingway, we are all apprentices in a craft where no one ever becomes a master. Profoundly Uh, true. It's one of my favorite writing quotes. You know... I learn as much from my mistakes as I do my successes. If you know, honestly, more. I learn more from mistakes than I do successes because when I recognize my own mistake, that's when I learn something. Not when somebody points it out to me or when I have gathered up the tool and put it in my box, or, my toolbox. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. <laughs> We're not. This is not that kind of podcast. I'm just gonna put that pun over there and leave it there. Yeah, put it over there. <laughs> when I put a new skill in my writer's box, in my writer toolkit, <laughs> let's, let's go there, writer toolkit, um, and I recognize a mistake in my in my work on my own, then then I have grown as a writer, and I have um, I've made a connection that will stay with me um, as like when I had that epiphany about dialogue when I finally got it right when I finally stopped doing that and occasionally there will be a typo where I'll put a period instead of a comma but I know the difference I know what should be there 
<laughs> so let's not confuse typos with actually knowing how to do it. Because that happens. We all do typos. But when I finally caught on the difference between a dialogue tag and an action beat, I was like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> I have made fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do when you when you figure it out for yourself. It is. It also it sticks with you in ways your successes don't. Um, you're sitting there going, "Oh, you will remember that forever." I will never ever forget about the day I learned that I was using the wrong pour. <laughs> I I will never forget that. Um, for starters, because I really really hate using the wrong word, and the fact that I had done. The fact that I had I had uh, written hundreds of thousands of words with the wrong pour it just it made me batshit insane. I was like, I used the wrong word for like three decades. How is this possible? Recently, so, I learned the difference between ordinance and ordinance. Yeah, that's a painful <laughs> moment, isn't it? So, yeah, so those things stick with you. You remember when you figure out your own shit. So, uh, yeah, you definitely learn. And it's it's good to learn. I love learning something new every day. I, I uh, was wondering yesterday, in context of something else, I was like, do we treat, like, the Chicago Manual Styles, like, you don't, you don't italicize the name of, of um, applications, right? But you do italicize the names of books and movies, well, I'm like, well, what about a video game? Where does that fall in this? Um, what about where does where does video games fall in this? And um, I well, logically, I would say that it's a title that it would be italicized because yeah. it's like a work of art, like like you would italicize the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Well, I made the assumption that it wasn't going to be addressed in the Chicago Manual style. It was. It was. <laughs> it had. It, it had its own fucking subsection. Um, that and they even addressed the contradiction of the fact that it was. Yes, it's a software application. You know, it is considered an application, but that it's treated in in fictional narratives like a movie because of usually because of the, especially in the modern world, the production value and stuff makes it more of a significant work. And therefore you italicize the title of it and that they even kind of retro made that retroactive to early works that were really much more like an app like Pac-Man. So, uh, it, uh, and so because I had made some bad assumptions about that whole process, learning it will really stick with me. <laughs> so, um, Okay, so in terms of that question, uh, how do you know when you're overusing, what are the do's and don'ts? We talked a little bit about the do's and don'ts about internal monologue and exposition. Um, we talked about the repetitiveness. I think one of the most important things, the do's and don'ts of both of them, both internal monologue and exposition, even if your exposition is, is being done through internal monologue, is to make sure that um, you're using it as, as sparingly as possible and that what you're doing is moving your story forward. So definitely don't go on repeat, but also don't do more than you need to because that will weigh your story down. Both of those, both of those two vehicles for imparting information, internal monologue and exposition can make your story heavy if they are used excessively or, um, if you're putting too much 
uh, if you're doing it too often. Actually, that's the same thing. I just made myself a synonym of myself. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know when you're overusing it? Um, When you're boring the shit out of yourself in your rewrite or your second draft, you know you got too much in there. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also why you need to give your space from your narrative. Um, Give yourself... If you, if if at all possible, a month or so between um, your finished draft and your second draft, give your. I mean, in in fandom you have more time, okay. In a professional environment, when you're working as a professional writer and you've got deadlines and stuff, you need to plan your your writing schedule and plan um, how your work uh, gets. Uh, first drafted and second drafts um, and how that happens and for me when it, uh, professionally speaking um, I don't always give myself the time I deserve or even that my fiction deserves and this is coming from a place of a plotter where I don't need that I mean that would be arrogant okay man some works need more of a buffer than others when you're writing short erotica like the merman, I really didn't need a whole lot of buffer with that because it was just a a fuck fic. <laughs> so you know, I I knew where it was going to start, where it was going to end, and um, there weren't a lot of decisions to make about point of view um, or. Uh, um, and there wasn't a lot of exposition because there didn't need to be a lot of exposition. This is what's happening. This is how they're going to meet. This is what they're going to do. This is what they did. Right? Mm-hmm. But when you get into a novel like Fall for You, um, I did give myself about three weeks between my rough draft and my second draft. Was I, was you, the more space you give yourself between your edits the more objectivity you will have. And you'll you'll notice those sections where you have droned on or where you've been on repeat. Repeat can be really easy to do if you are writing in a fragmented way. So if you didn't just sit down and bang it out according to like a plot document or something, it's really easy to have, especially emotional things, get on repeat. I read a story once this was recently, where I started making a bet with myself because the characters had the I love you moment multiple times, the first I love you moment. And clearly the author didn't keep track of when the big I love you happened. And um, so the second time it happened, I was scratching my head going, didn't they already have this I love you? Oh, I love you too. I've been afraid to say it. Didn't that already happen? Okay, maybe maybe I'm third time it happened. I was like, okay, I know this has happened before. (laughs) Now, now I'm gonna now. So what I did is at that point I was like, I I go into entire story mode. I searched for I love you, and yes, it had happened two prior times. So now I was in the third time of the I love you. So I'm starting to take a bet with myself: how much story is left? How many times is this going to happen? Get to the fourth time, I'm like, okay, we're close to the end. This has got to be the last I love you. No, it was five. Wow. The the very last paragraph was the final I love you. And each time it was told in the. Like it was the first. Like it was the first. And the I've been afraid to tell you, or I didn't want to say anything, or, you know, I felt it for you. So it was was told in the context that this is the first time it's been told, but that was the fifth time. 
So if that's, you could tell that story. I looked, that story was told. It was written over like, I think three or three and a half years or something like that. And they obviously weren't reading their work. They weren't reading their work when they went in to re write a new chapter. They clearly didn't have many plot notes. They hadn't kept track of what they had done already in the story. And so if something is told, you've written it in a fragmented way like that, where you've come back to it after months, that is when you really need to give yourself some space and sit down and reread it from start to finish and catch those continuity problems. Because every author should be able to catch continuity problems. If they give themselves a little bit of time, step back from the work, and go in and reread it. <laughs> 50 first days. I've never seen that movie because I don't really enjoy Adam Sandler. Um, it's one of the few movies of his I do like. It's a very different vibe for him. Um, which is weird because it's kind of like a a riff on the amnesia thing. I the only one I've ever really enjoyed would be The Wedding Singer. It's a very similar vibe. It's probably because that's he and Drew Barrymore both in both of them. So this is information I could have had yesterday. <laughs> How many times have I said that in my life? More than I should actually. Yeah, it's yeah. it's one of my favorite quotes. Um. My mother has a big has a big affection for the water boy. And oh. foosball, foosball. And I, you know, honestly, I've I've watched it um and Kathy Bates makes that movie. Yes, I would agree. But beyond I would just forward fast forward all her scenes and that's that would be all I'd want to watch of that. Um but 50 First Dates is and the and I was trying to figure out how that how that movie is going to have a realistic happy ending and I really like the ending, so well, if she has short-term memory um, problems, how does she create long-term memory? Or is she incapable of creating long-term memory? Do you want me to tell you how this book, how the story ends? Yeah, I mean, you couldn't spoil it for anybody, really, because how long has it been out? Decades? Forever. So if yeah. you don't want to know this, folks, put your fingers The thing is, by the end of the movie, she, he, she falls in love with him several times, right? But every morning she wakes up and she's forgotten. So what happens at the end of the movie, some time has passed, and every morning she wakes up, and there's a video for her to watch about her life, where she's reintroduced to her husband and her daughter. I think it's her daughter. And she goes up to the... They live on a boat, and they she goes up to the deck of the boat every morning, and meets her family for the first time. And um, it's just really touching the way it's presented because every morning she wakes up not knowing anything and she watches this video where her family tells her, we love you. We're waiting for you upstairs and gives her time to resettle into her place in life. And then she goes upstairs, it goes up to the, you know, the deck of the boat and she meets her husband and her daughter again. And every night she goes to bed and she forgets again and she wakes up and the process starts and they love her so much. They, keep updating these videos and every day they give her this framework for her life again so that she can have a life that moves forward well that is fucking charming right you know it also says about his character this is actually a really good point about characterization is that um his his love and loyalty are not um transitory because it would be very easy to walk away from her. She wouldn't even remember them. Yeah. 
There was, she did have some stuff buried, like in her subconscious in some fashion, because she was painting scenes from her life that she couldn't remember. So there was something there that she was, that's why he was familiar to her in some fashion, because he was, she was painting, but she couldn't actually explicitly remember. So, um, but she was in an institution, right? She was eventually institutionalized because she had this sort of, she was in an institution and he wasn't happy with that. He wanted her to, um, he loved her. So, yeah, because that's where she was doing most of her painting, I think, was in the institution. But um, it, I haven't seen this movie in years. But, you know, they fell in love, and she she did, she did was kind of like he was familiar to her. So they did, um, they did get married. She did eventually go through having a kid, and then the end of the movie ends with finding out how she deals with every day. So it's, I think it would be traumatic to wake up eight months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they they did gloss over that just to wake up going, oh my god, what's happened to me? But I'm sure there were videos on those days too, with probably her talking to herself from the prior day. You're pregnant. It's okay. You did it on purpose. See, look at what we did. <laughs> but it what it it's next. I think it and the wedding singer probably tie for me with Adam Sandler movies, and then beyond that, I just couldn't do without any of the rest of them. <laughs> There's something um, wrong with your Abdullah Mangal. How does he say it? That was it, yeah. <laughs> Abdullah Mangala or something like that. It's hilarious. So I think the, the the biggest tip for how to know if you're overusing it is you guys just got to give yourself time and then evaluate the pace of your story. If you're dragged down in exposition but you really think you need it, then I would say that's a cue to you that you need to insert some scenes. Yeah, breaking up your exposition with uh, conversations with your character, with some action, with a blowjob here or there, can be really beneficial for your pace. Because mm -hmm. exposition is really, you know, almost entirely a pace killer. Um, and if you've got three or four paragraphs going in a, in a fiction situation, and there's no dialogue coming up anytime soon, you got a problem. And mostly it's because the modern fiction reader is going to start skipping your paragraphs to find the dialogue. Yeah, they think nothing's happening. Uh, I tried, when I need exposition, especially exposition, if I need to, like, impart some information in a way that I want to get it, you know, I try to keep my paragraphs as short as possible without being, like, choppy because it will help the reader move through it and not miss it because they, otherwise they might get the first sentence of every paragraph, maybe the last, and then move on. So, and what happens is writers tend to lump their exposition into big paragraphs, and the reader just skips right through them. I would. Mm -hmm. On that so, point, also, big giant paragraphs are, are a pace killer. Yeah. If it takes up my entire Kindle screen, no. Just don't do it. Okay. Four, so, five, six. Six sentences at the maximum per paragraph. Yeah, and that depends upon how complex your sentences are. Right. Because if you write a lot of compound sentences or complex compound sentences, um, and compound sentence would be two independent clauses joined together. Complex compound sentences would be, in, would be two sentences joined together that have multiple clauses in each sentence. Um, and you do six of those, that paragraph would be fucking enormous. 
Right. So, I mean, like, maybe, maybe 150, 200 words, and I think 200 would be an, out, uh, an outlier. Yeah. 150 in my writing feels long. When I, like, right. I'll, look at a, I'll look at a long paragraph and highlight it, and it'll be 125 words, and I'll go, mm. wow. Mm. I, I need to pull that apart a little bit. But three or four pages of exposition is, um, it's bad craft. Now, exposition is not the same thing as action. You can have no dialogue and have 5,000 words of action. That's not exposition. So right. don't, don't confuse. It's not a choice of dialogue or exposition. You know, there's a lot more types of beats than that. Moving your character through a scene, um, there's lots of action, you know, uh, Julie has an entire chapter dedicated to um, an action scene in was it was was, was that your April? Yeah, demons. More demons. Um, but exposition is mostly just it's just data that you that you're having to dump on your reader, and because it is called a data dump, you don't want to do it often, and you don't want to do a lot of it. You don't want to drown your reader. And if you do need to impart a lot of data to the reader, find another way to do it. Like a court scene, a trial scene, or a classroom, or um, your character's learning something, or they run, into a, they run into an expert in the field and they learn about this stuff from the supposed expert and you do it in dialogue. You've got to find a different delivery vehicle. If, if there's a lot, if you've got more than a couple paragraphs, find a w different way to deliver it than just a blob of text. Okay, so next question. Um, da, 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 da. Crossovers in a world not connected in canon and fusions of one fandom into another fandom world. What are the general strategies for both? Uh, so let's talk about crossovers first because there's two types. Let's talk about, well, define fusion for the fusion thing first. There's two definitions for fusion. Okay, Fuse, there's a, the original definition of fusion was where you took characters from one fandom and you replaced characters from another fandom with those characters. For instance, if you took the cast of NCIS and you replaced the cast of SG-1 with the NCIS cast and you rewrote Stargate SG-1 with the cast of NCIS instead, that would be the first type of fusion. There's that Star I Trek fix that does that with NCIS. Um, they're, um... Uh, Fate Protects Fools... Small Children and Ships Named Valor or something like yes. that. Yes. The Sunrider story. It's exceptional. Very um, good. The NCIS cast is placed into the um, Star Trek universe. Gibbs is the captain of the ship. Tony is a trill who eventually, I think, becomes a first officer. Maybe I don't remember that correctly. Um, uh, anyway, so that's a, that's a really good example of a that, but fusion has come to mean something else more typically. Most people don't write that kind of fusion. They don't write the kind of fusion where you're plunking all the characters from one fandom into another in a way that their original fandom does not exist. Okay, so let's, that's one type of fusion. The other type of fusion is where you are taking two different types of worlds and you are fusing them together. The most common type of fusion for that would be the Sentinel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. After, there's a reason why we did the Sentinel, why it's called a little black dress on Rough Trade, is because it is like the most common fusion in fandom today, where you could mix the Sentinel in with any other fandom and it works. Right. So you take Sentinel and you take that world building, and it's actually not canon Sentinel that you're fusing, it is the fanon Sentinel, 
the Sentinels are known, and you fuse it into another world. Although you could do canon as well, where you'd have like an emergence of Sentinels, but that's a different thing. Um, but you're taking the world building of one fandom and you're fusing it into another. Okay, so let's bear in mind the two different definitions of fusion. Okay, going back to crossover. Crossover is where you take characters from two different shows where conceivably both shows exist and they are interacting together. Like NCIS and Hawaii Five-O. Right. Or... Now th that I almost wouldn't, that's a loose crossover. It's barely a crossover because they exist in the same universe. Technically right. a crossover, but it's not a difficult crossover because they exist in the same universe. You don't have to worry about any kind of complications. As long as you don't fuck up the timeline, <laughs> our fading frenzy is just one big giant crossover yes <laughs> if yes. found is definitely a crossover yes because the rules of both universes still exist and the characters are functioning in that world um so because I, toward, I lean towards fusion over crossover personally imperfect is a fusion and a crossover because you've got crossover. The, the sentinel fusion Sentinel fusion, criminal right? Crossover criminal minds. So um, sometimes you do. Uh, Macavity is. I would say that's crossover. It's definitely crossover. Um, the thing is, what she's doing there is she's creating her own world building that might feel like a fusion, but it is her original world building that she's laying on on all of these crossover fandoms. So people might think fusion, but there's really not any fusion elements since it's her world building. Um, she's putting um, Tony in these various fandoms. Um, so, but I do tend to lean towards lean towards the fusion over the crossover. Personally, I like to to mix things together and create uh, new things. Mm -hmm. um, I think Sentinels of Atlantis is probably my biggest fusion. Mm -hmm. You do have some crossover elements, sort of a little bit in Ties of Bind. Yeah. Um, because Ties of Bind is original world building, or it's the BDSM world, it's the BDSM AU, or alternate reality, but the characters that exist, like her Criminal Minds characters, are still at the BAU. Right. So that's, that's your crossover element, is the characters still exist in their canon setting, crossover. So when it comes, for me, when it comes to the strategies for doing this, for starters, it's easy to do a crossover in worlds that are in the same universe. So anything in the Stargate franchise... Where you get into trouble is when you start mucking with the timeline. When worlds, are, when when stories are in the same universe, when shows are in the same universe, and you start jiggling the timeline, it it can create a ripple problem that could drive you bonkers. It's sort of like saying that you know first season MacGyver happened in season two of NCIS. It doesn't work because MacGyver. Um, now, mind you, of course, they retconned NCIS quite a bit to make all those MacGyver references. We're supposed to forget that they, not you know, not MacGyver, Magnum references, and MacGyver, forget that they that they didn't exist. But whatever. Um, but because um, the shows are intertwined, especially these shows tend to all seem to interface with Hawaii Five O, and Hawaii Five O interfaced with. NCIS LA and NCIS LA interfaced with NCIS and the the interconnectedness <laughs> you create a ripple problem when you try to mess up the timeline so just when it comes to shows in the same universe 
just leave the timeline alone and then have fun because these characters implicitly exist together. Um, now, when it comes to crossovers, one of the things, one of my strategies for crossovers is I avoid doing crossovers with shows, this is just my preference, that make it difficult, give me characterization issues. And by that, I mean this is why I don't do things like Supernatural crossed over with most of the crime dramas I write. Because it makes your cops look completely incompetent. Right. The, NCI, the, the supernatural stuff was too per pervasive and it affected law enforcement too many times in canon to not make... And they look like boobs in canon, right? So if I'm writing my main character is a federal agent who somehow doesn't know about this stuff and he's one of those boobs that runs afoul of the Winchesters um, and has never questioned, you know, has never run across or questioned ghosts, fairies, whatever, all these bizarre things. Um, you know, you have to be careful, very careful when you're choosing that kind of crossover, when you're taking a paranormal fandom and you're putting it into a contemporary fandom. You have to be very careful what the implication of bringing those things together. What does it say about your characters in either fandom? when you put them together. Now, in a fandom like Teen Wolf, where there's more of the big secret kind of thing, you can get away with it a little bit more. Um, to me, Supernatural was it felt like, look, why doesn't everybody know about this stuff? It seemed really pervasively obvious. You know, they had so many different kinds of things. It wasn't just, um, you know, one or two things. They had witches. They had they had vampires and and werewolves and fairies and and it was it was it was it was affecting the world on a pretty grand scale. So you know, th they had apocalypses. So you have to just be careful how you bring your paranormal and your contemporary fandoms together. Um, um, it can definitely be done to bring those kinds of fandoms together. You just have to really do a lot of planning. Uh, Stargate is an easy one. Sci-fi can be a difficult one to bring into contemporary fandoms as well. But when you got the big secret, like Stargate, it becomes really simple because you just make them super competent with the cover-up, right? right? So if you if you but you have to be careful to hold that line. If they're incompetent with the cover-up, you've now shattered your suspension of disbelief. Or you need to have some judge where your character kind of knows what's going on. Um, like with Tony Genozo, you know, if if you introduce Tony Genozo to the Stargate, it's always you know, you always gotta like say we want to thank you for not digging too deep into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean Tony's a smart guy. If he runs across something that he knows he's really not supposed to know, he's gonna not look into it. I mean, yeah, he's curious, but he doesn't want to disappear down some deep dark hole either. So he's not an idiot. Um, yeah, sure. Know about the Stargate. Uh, you just you just got to be careful how you bring these kinds of elements together in worlds that are very have very disparate rules. Um, and especially when they occur in different time periods. So a lot of times when we have shows that are disparate canon timelines, we move one right. We slide one forward or backward through time. And that's fine. It's just be, be certain you're doing it carefully. It's like if you're sliding a fandom backward in time, you got to be careful about what technology you allow them to have. 
does that change things? Sliding forward through time is as big a deal. Usually, like, the thing I do this the most with is um, Stargate, which is, like, if I want to do something with Stargate and, like, later season, latter season um, NCIS, then I have to move Stargate forward, usually. And so I'll just put in the notes, right? Stargate's been moved forward a decade. Something like that. So I think it's just a case of planning, like being very careful how you plan it and that you consider the consequences of, of you merging your fandoms together. Like, I don't see how you could put, like, a really super futuristic fandom, like, let's say, the Chronicles of Riddick, in with Stargate and have it... Not Stargate. Um, and, like, NCIS and the Chronicles of Riddick into the same story and not have it actually be like more like a fusion or like you're borrowing a character. It can't be a true crossover because the world building makes no sense together. Well, I have a, a fusion with um, Stargate and Halo that I've been working on for quite a long time. It's all about world building and um, I'm, I play with it every once in a while. And what I had to do was make it a fusion because of the way um, the events played in, in Halo um, and there's a big giant war with aliens, um, and that war would have been different if they'd had the Stargate. So, in Halo, there is this uh, species called the Forerunners. So, oh, thanks, Margaret. So, what I did was, is that I made the Forerunners and the Ancients, um, I made the Forerunners the ancestors of the Ancients. That the ancients were the next ones. Nice. And so that after the Covenant War happened in Halo, um, in their in their rebuilding, they find a Stargate on a different world, not on Earth. And they bring it back to Earth. Um, and so what that created was is that the Haloverse existed as it did because there was no Stargate left on Earth. Um, and therefore... Raw didn't have Earth wasn't on Raw's radar, so the, the Earth flourished in a different way, and da, 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 it all it all kind of expanded. And then we had the Covenant War, and now they found the Stargate. Um, and one of my plot ideas is that um, is that it's kind of like a Sentinel fusion as well, because the Spartans need engineers to keep their keep balanced because of how much time they spend in the armor. And how isolating the armor is. And so I created technological tethers that are very much like the guide bond between a sentinel and a guide. Um, and Rodney is John's engineer. And Ro and John was lost at the Supergate because they're fighting the Ori. And he's been declared chaos. He's been declared, um, he, he's been declared MIA. Um, and uh, there's been some pressure on Rodney to pick a new Spartan. And he's like, uh, not, not only no, but hell no. And so he takes his ass off to Pegasus. To work on Atlantis, and the Asgard find John, and they bring him to Pegasus for Rodney, and um, so, and then Rodney gets his Spartan back, and yeah, but um, it's so I have a two, I have two, I have the the original where they meet in the pale horse where they come together as Spartan and engineer. And then I have a future fic where John has been lost and Rodney's not dealing with it. Well, ouch, but he's just, he's um, his pod 
has a has a corrupted um and there's also I'm not sure if that expert that expert's actually on line. I think it might be the the the, the second one where um Rodney's in Atlantis and he's waiting and he's kind of just he's not gonna do it. He's not gonna go back to Earth and, and pick a new Spartan. And um it's causing a lot of internal strife in the in the mechanism because other Spartans are saying, No, you're not gonna force McKay to take a another one. You're not doing it. You don't. You're, you're not forcing an engineer because they're putting themselves in the position of saying, "Would you force my engineer to pick a new Spartan if I was gone?" I don't fucking think so. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of political um, things going on um, in the background of that. But one of the things is a little Easter egg is that in the midst of finding John, they also found another Spartan, and that Spartan is John's grandfather. Oh. The original Spartan from the game. Whose name is also John. Spartan 314, yeah. Wow. I'm really looking forward to it. That's That's going to be really cool. I love Pale Horse. I think it's beautiful. Uh, now, I do a lot more crossover work um, than Kira does. So, I do put a lot of thought into what crossovers, what crossover fandoms I'm going to use. It's not uncommon for me to stick to contemporary crime dramas because it's really easy to cross over those kinds of fandoms because they all operate with the same fundamental rules. Um, I think the most out there kind of crossover that I can think of that I do is I use the ATFAU, um, which it is slightly weird that the AU, that a modern AU of a Western is bigger than the the actual fandom for the original show. It's fucking huge. Yeah, it is. It's enormous. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, it, there's reasons why that happened. It was because people were, people didn't want to write Old West, but they loved the characters. And so somebody created a really, there are actually a lot of contemporary AUs that are open for people to write in, but it was the ATF AU that took off, probably because it mimicked that vibe of the of the teen crime drama thing that was so popular at the time. So when I use it, when I want to use those characters, I mean, I love those characters, I really do. So, um, yeah, and Michael Bean, yeah, yeah, Michael Bean, yeah. That's all you really have to say, right? The summer so, of Michael is coming. I'm I'm excited. So it's not a so that's a little bit of a strange one there that I'm actually using in a in a crossover. I'm I'm using a an AU of a fandom. I find that to be kind of an odd, like my brain kind of tilt goes tilt on it. But because and the reason the reason I do it is because the eight people there are a lot of people out there who think that there was a Mag Seven ATF show, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because that's how pervasive that AU. Is. I would have thought so if I hadn't been told otherwise. Yeah, so, you know, find, for a lot of people finding out that it was really a Western, they're scratching their head going, I don't get it. Because the big fandom is the ATFAU. Uh, it, so that was a brilliant bit of world building that somebody did to put that AU together and then opened it up for anybody who wanted to to write in it. And everybody did. Yeah, Mog created that. I think that um, when it comes to creating a fusion, that you need to make um, very specific specific level. A lot coming out. Specific. Specific. specific 
and concise choices in your world building. Um, and you really, like when I did Sentinels of Atlantis, I, I made the decision to settle everything into the SGA, SG-1 universe. Um, and that includes Blair and um, uh, Jim. And they have a different set of circumstances because they're the Alpha Primes of North America. Um, and they originally did come from Cascade. But uh, one of the things a lot of people didn't get immediately was that the Jim and Blair in Sentinels of Atlantis is not the Jim and Blair from The Awakening. Really? No, they're, they're not connected. I know, they couldn't possibly be. But all people didn't get that at first. They thought that I was, you know, that right. the Sentinels of Atlantis was basically a spinoff of The Awakening, and that's not true. Um, and so I had to make very um, very specific choices for The Sentinels of Atlantis when I was building it, like um, when it comes to the history of the Prides and how they disappeared and how they're going to reemerge and the, and the um, Sentinel awakening that's happening on Earth as, as a result of what Stargate Command has done as far as getting Lumera out of the water and into space and um, John's connection to his father um, through the psionic plane um, and the Sentinel and Guide pair that are currently ascended uh, and you know, it, it all has play and so you have to make these decisions and I, I have to think honestly that riding a fusion like biggest task for a pantser. I mean, because I, <laughs> I'd be a nervous wreck trying to pants a full-out fusion, because there's so much you have to take into account. Yeah, because you basically have to world-build. You're taking two fandoms that have world, but have worlds, that have rules, right? They have world rules. Or an AU of a fandom, whatever. And you are fusing them together those world that that those world rules and you have to deal with all the inconsistencies you have to deal with the contradictions you have to deal with what it implicitly means i mean like sentinel and guide a lot like okay um i read this was i read reading this earlier today i was reading a soulmate au okay soulmate AUs. it's it's kind of an interesting trope it's not exactly a a fandom fusion kind of thing but it's kind of like a trope fusion where you are basically taking a set of world building rules that are, you know to some fashion, and you are fusing them into your fandom. And you have to figure out what that means, right? So in this story, catch this, there have always been soulmates. These are the rules that are kind of, you know, sprinkled through the story. There have always been soulmates, and approximately 30 to 40% of people are same-sex, pairing soulmates, right? 30 to 40%. Think about that. And yet, and yet, they had... It's, they had... Um, homophobia play a major role in the story. How does that even happen? You cannot have a world like that where you say, I've got this world that works on these rules where since the dawn of time 30% of men are going to be with another man is their perfect pairing for their, for their life, right? You cannot have those rules and somehow have had homophobia and rear its ugly head and all of the you have to deal with your contemporary the contemporary rules of your other fandom and figure out what doesn't gel with that world building and so they have this huge thing that is like it's it landed like a lead balloon that on, that you know it was only okay in the last decade or so for same-sex couples to be together that 
It's just stupid. Yeah, it is. It is stupid. And that's where you have to when you're when you're fusing a trope that has big world building like that, or you're fusing fandom world building and whatever it is because you know lead balloons can only fly if something's flying them. But um, you. So why the MythBusters paint a balloon with um, lead? But it's I'm talking it's about a solid lead balloon. It's not, disingenuous. Not that that whole myth thing is disingenuous because they're not saying a balloon made out of lead material. They're saying a solid lead balloon. It's like saying that this is impossible. What you're asking me to do, it's impossible. Yeah, and so. Yeah, they use foil. They use lead foil, which is not the same thing. I mean, in a Soulmate AU, you could have like some references. I don't know why you would need to, but you could have some references to religions that had risen over time that tried to stamp out same-sex pairings or something like that, but that it was so contrary to the obvious natural order, because fucking Soulmate marks, right, that you're born with. Um, if it's not a solid lead balloon, I'm not watching that. Um... It wasn't. It was foil. It was it was lead foil. I of mean, course it's, it's not a solid lead balloon. Because it literally wouldn't fly. Right. It can't possibly. Um, Unless it had anyway. an engine attached to it. A really good, powerful rocket engine. Maybe. Not still. Um, anyway, so... whatever. Whether you're fusing in a, like a, a, a kind of an AU trope, like Soulmates, or... Um, a trope like a world building, like Sentinels and no are known kind of trope genre thing. Um, trying to think of some other big tropes that are fusion tropes. BDSM world. Yeah, that kind of thing. You have to consider that, that all, all of these things would not have evolved the same way. And so to, to have all of your history, your contemporary history, be exactly the same when you've put this giant thing in that changes the rules of your universe... It's absurd. So that is fusion for a pantser, Igricura. It is, I find, it is fun. It is fascinating. Uh, like, you can't drop psychics, for instance, on the world and have the world look the same. Or mediums, or whatever. Superpowers, right? Like some, some bug or some aliens come along and they irradiate the planet or something, and all of a sudden everybody's got superpowers. Whatever you do it is going to make the world different. And so to keep the world intact and to say that Don't Ask, Don't Tell existed, existed until 2011 in a, in a world where people are, have been soulmates and had soul marks since birth and 30% of them would be same sex, it doesn't make sense. So that's where fusion can be a very daunting task in general. It can also be a very rewarding, very fun task, but it is a difficult task to pants. I wouldn't want to do it. And if I you got it, you're a Spartan. <laughs> I appreciate you, but I don't know. Mm -mm, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I can't even plan to pause. I, I, you know, it's just not comfortable to pants. And um, it, it has to be an organic thing. And a very small thing for me. Because at some point, if it gets too big, I have to stop and plot. Yeah. 
So there's there's a follow-on question to the fusion thing that we might be able to answer real quick. Okay. But I don't I don't think we'll get to the fourth question in the chat room. The follow-on question to the fusion thing is can a fusion count with a fix it or would it need to be canon divergence? Um It's an it I would have to give that a big old it depends. It depends on the nature of your fusion. Um if you have a fusion that implicitly wipes out canon or would significantly alter it, I don't know how that could be a fix-it. Um, like a psychic AU, right? So if you have a fusion, your fusion has like a psychic overlay, right? Uh, can, can, canon would remain intact. I mean, you could say it remained intact, but it doesn't mean it would actually in any way make sense. Well, he, like, okay, here's a specific scenario that might work. I'm going to say it, and you can tell me otherwise. As to the getting the other question, I think we can, because um, blog talk isn't going to cut us off. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. true. So, <laughs> we're used to being um, confined. Timely. But, yeah, timely. Okay, so, idea um, for a fix-it. Um... Atlantis is destroyed. And John has given... John's been... The powers of the universe, wherever you want to go with it, whoever you want it to be, um, grabs John and says, um, you can fix this, but we're going to have to make some changes. To you. You need to be a little more than you are. And John agrees. And they send him back in time to the moment he sits down in the chair in Antarctica and John Shepard comes online as a sentinel the very first of his kind on earth I would call that a fix it now there's there's one of the things we talked about in terms of fixing you can't fix a problem of your own creation but it doesn't mean you can't take a problem of your own creation as the catalyst for your fix it be like the earth fell type thing we're going to send you back in time because which is perfectly fine as long as what you're ultimately fixing is canon the can the, the fix has to ripple into canon that's the point of a fix it is you so ripple your fix into canon john is a sentinel they don't know how to deal with him um Maybe Daniel remembers reading a dissertation once about something. Maybe, you know, you could you maybe maybe bring Blair in, but I don't know. That could cross into fusion. Um, but you need a source for information? Well, I think if you're doing Sentinel at all, it's a, it's a fusion, but it's a fusion with you're bringing the Sentinel world building in as the fix-it. You're bringing the Sentinel... Yeah. Your fix it, your fix it is the sentinel to peace, right? Is Blair's older, he never met Jim, which is kind of sad. Um, well, a crossover, you can have you can do a fix it with a crossover, which was right. if Jim and Blair exist, you know. The thing is that's where you've got a crossover and and then you've got the sentinel stuff, but the thing is it's not a sentinels and guides are known AU fusion, which would right. not be a fix it. Because right. they aren't known. It's just, it's got a crossover, and now John is like Jim. And that becomes your fix-it element. 
I know. I think you're right. It it would be a crossover, but I think when you come to, fusions are very difficult to put into place and and do a fix it because you're you're warping the canon, and your point is is to correct canon or fix canon, not warp canon. But it, it depends upon if your fusion element is introduced at the point of the fix it. Like let's say you have a dimensional shift or something in the MCU where. Um, you have a character come in that brings some element that changes the world. But the thing is, the world can't have always been like that. So if you're introducing a fusion element that is going to alter your world, that is the catalyst for your fix, you could argue that that's a fix-it. But you have to be very careful that your world wasn't altered to begin with. Outside of like the crossover thing. So you just it's just one of those things to be really careful with, which is why like in a um like if you're gonna do crossovers and a fix it, you have to especially at a challenge type fix it, you have to be very careful that you aren't like using a paranormal fandom as your crossover because um that could be weird. It could be difficult to explain. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Like um, one of my stories for the, that was going to be for the Quantum Bang that I eventually abandoned for a different story was a story I posted for Evil Author Day Overqualified. I did officially change the name on that, by the way. And that story takes an outside character that does not alter the Teen Wolf, wolf world, and he comes in and he's the catalyst for change. Now, his the fix it there was shooting Gerard Arden in the head, but it was a great fix it. Yeah, so <laughs> that he, was like if I if I was a smoker, I I lit up. I'm just saying. <laughs> but so that was a you have an out character from an outside fandom, but there's nothing about the NCIS world that invalidates the Teen Wolf world. So you can bring in this outside character who's a catalyst for change that you leverage into the fix into your canon. The problem comes in potentially in the reverse, is does your, the fandom you're inserting into the fandom you're fixing, does it invalidate your world in some fashion? So you just have to be careful with it. But that's only, you know, one of the things that we've talked about with the Quantum Bang when it comes to fix-its is that fix-it is about fixing canon. And as long as you can talk to how you fixed canon, if you can justify it, I'm not here to argue with you about it. Right? It isn't about policing you. It is about... Yeah. Um, I forget much. I forget what I was going to say. Yeah, not, neither, neither, neither me nor Kira, nor I don't think anybody else are... In, now, it will probably... I'm going to say it up front. It will probably happen. There will probably be a comment or two somewhere where someone will say something snotty about this doesn't seem like a fix it. And that those comments are not going to get through. Or someone will complain to one of us and say this doesn't seem like a fix it. That's not for anybody else to judge. Okay? I'm not interested in being the fix it police. Kira's not interested in being the fix it police. We have explained the parameters of the challenge, which is fix it is a very broad category of canon divergence. It is a type of canon divergence. But you can have non-canon elements, right? I mean, you can introduce non-canon. Otherwise, if you don't introduce non-canon elements, I don't know how you achieve anything. Um, but 
I, I'm not going to go and ask anybody to explain or justify how their story is to fix it. The point is, is that you know. And if you think you know that you've cha fixed canon in some fashion, then that's it. That's the end of it. That's the end of it. That's, there's no more discussion to be had. Um, did you want to go with the ask deal with the last question? Yeah, what's the last question? The last question is, what's your plot planning process like dialogue and the like? I don't actually plan dialogue. I tend to write, um, I, I, I tend to plot with points. Um, and sometimes like a plot point will equal uh, a paragraph. Sometimes a plot point will equal half a chapter, depending on what the plot point is. Like if I find a plot point that says, you know, Tony takes a phone call from the president. That's not a chapter. But if I had a plot point that said Harry goes on trial for da 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 da, that's a chapter. <laughs> you know? And so looking at my plot points I can figure out figure out what my um work count is gonna be for the most part. And I actually often get pretty close. I was in like five or ten K of um my quantum bang word count estimate. So um, I was on the fence all through finding Atlantis what my word count was going to be not because I didn't have my plot points because I did but because I wasn't sure if I was going to use all my plot points and you replotted a few times I did so. replot and also I um, I inserted a penguin and there was the penguin yeah. which takes some words um, I don't, sometimes I'll make a note of a line of dialogue that I want to be sure happens, and sometimes that line of dialogue, dialogue comes out very differently in the actual implementation, but like, I'll make a note that, you know, Tony needs to say something about such and such. Um, but otherwise I don't plan dialogue. I do typically know in advance which things I'm going to address in dialogue and which things I'm going to address in narrative, so... I have, I have, if you mean plan the dialogue in that context, like there's going to be a conversation between Patrick and Tony in the first scene, then yes, I, I know that kind of stuff up front. Um, my planning process is looser than Kira's. Uh, much looser. I sent her and, my quantum mind document. I was like, would you look at this and tell me if it looks stupid? And I, and I told her what I thought looked stupid, which actually wasn't anything that looked stupid, but I did have some questions. Um, <laughs> Because I always have questions. <laughs> I'm always willing to ask questions and give opinions. I I tend to write more of a um, a synopsis and then a beat sheet kind of thing. But because I think I think it goes back to my project planning background that I tend to have more of a, a critical path that I'm looking at, like which events have to occur and which in which order, and which events are not in the critical path that have to occur. And I have two separate lists. And then when I'm sitting down to figure out what's going to be in a chapter, you know, I figure out what's in my critical path that has to happen and which of the things that are not in the critical path could happen that makes sense to happen around here. So. My modern plot document is a digital version of what I used to do when I was younger with note cards. Um, when I used to storyboard when I was very young and I didn't, you know, I, I typed on a typewriter, I wrote on a typewriter and so I didn't want to waste my ink, t you know, doing my um, uh, plotting. So I would write my plot events out on index cards and I would number them. 
um, and I would do a storyboard on my wall. I had a wall that was um, I my dad had got me had built me a cork board on my wall so I could storyboard, um, and it was uh, built specifically for me to, to do this with. And I would put my little index cards up and I would pin them and I would storyboard. Um, for my story, um, and I and for a while there, I tried to do it in OneNote, but it really didn't work out the way I wanted it to, and I don't like it in Scrivener. Um, so uh, my modern storyboard is just a list of um, numbered plot points that she prints out and scribbles on for the entire time she's writing. I do, yes. You would not believe the hot mess that the Unleash Your Demons turned out to be. I mean. Things are crossed through. There are notes on the backwards and forwards. I think it was, um, let's see. <clears throat> I shall tell you. Let me get over there. <laughs> Got too many folders. I do still use OneNote for character bios. Um, I don't always put them in there, but I usually put them in there. So um, I had the same issue as ultimately OneNote didn't work well for my plotting process. I tried, but it was kind of a dud. But I do put my do still typically tend to work up character bios in there, and I used to do continue to do my timelines in OneNote, but I started working my timelines more in Eon or Aeon or however that's pronounced. Um, I used um, OneNote to 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 um, gather research, keep it together. Okay, so my plot document is 18 pages long. My plot storyboard is 18 pages um, it is this is for unleash your demons um, I have 135 plot points and I ended up with 115k a story um, my 18 page document I printed it out and um, it is now written on and I only printed on one side of course and I use the back of each page for notes so it's front and back 18 pages of plot notes now. <laughs> I scribbled in the sidelines, I crossed things out, I highlighted shit, asked myself questions. I I don't, unless there's something's in a notebook, like I sometimes have, like, do all my plotting on paper, and like literally with pen, with pen and pen and paper. Sometimes those never come out of the notebook. They never get typed up. And so when that happens, I keep the notebook by the desk and I make notes. But usually if, I, if I've got it digital, it stays digital. And, um, I mean, once this was in the mid-aughts, early aughts, like around 2000, 2003, I think, I did one story just to test it. I did the whole thing, the plot, in Microsoft Project. Um, that's what I mean by creating a critical path. I, like, I had dependencies, and it was just, it was ridiculous. It was actually very effective, so... I will say that Microsoft Project is a better plotting tool than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like to brainstorm and um, like uh, on paper. So I, I, have, I, I keep a notebook with me and I use that for that. Um, I have a notebook dedicated to um, next year's Year of the Sentinel already. I've been working on I, I have ideas written down in it. Um, but um, I think we're going to stop now. And so I want to thank you all for joining us. and. Um, Hopefully, this will become a podcast that will end up on CastBox. So, uh, say goodnight, Julie. Good night, everyone. Originally, this podcast was um, uh, lost due to technical difficulties, but uh, 
a, a listener reached out with a copy, so I want to give a shout out to to Bass for the Hail Mary. Thank you very much. Thank you. 